The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am honored and pleased to introduce my two esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Aaron Finkelstein, member and managing attorney of the firm, and Alyssa Klein, also a member and has been with the firm about 10 years, and Aaron has been with the firm almost 20 years. Um, so you have over, well over half a century of information and knowledge uh, on immigration law and uh, complex issues. So what are we going to discuss today? In today's teleconference, we're planning to go over with you some practical advice and tips of what to do when the government comes knocking on your company's door. Uh, of course, as all good employers, you need to ensure that all your paperwork is accurate and complete and that you are in compliance, preferably before the government investigator or representative shows up from one of these agencies. Um, so what are, who, what are the main agencies we're talking about? Of course, we're talking about the USCIS's uh, investigative branch called the FDNS, the Fraud Detection and National Security. Uh, then, of course, you have the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, which is ICE. And then you have Department of Labor's WHD, the Wage and Hour Division. Um, so with that, let me jump to you, Aaron. So what are these agencies looking for? So if you start off by the USCIS, there are, it's, it's, a, it's not a sub-agency. It's actually just a department within the USCIS, which they refer to with the scary title of Fraud Detection and National Security, FDNS. FDNS is what I refer to as the whatever um, group. And the reason why is they're basically coming in and what they're looking for is whatever they can find. Is the employee who's supposed to be at location A or location B, is the employee not there? Is the employee doing the wrong job? They're supposed to be doing one job and they're doing a different job. Is the employee working for a different client that you didn't notify them? They're basically seeking to say that what's happened, that everything that you, the commitments that were made on the H-1B, on the I-129, on the H supplement, in the petitioner letter, that there's compliance and that things are taking place. Um, when you get to ICE, Immigration Custom Enforcement, that's a broader spectrum. It reaches out beyond just immigration, and it's looking at I-9 compliance. Were the forms filled out correctly? Did you get verification that they were authorized to work in the United States? Whether it's a foreign national, whether it's a U.S. worker, whether it's a U.S. citizen, whether it's a permanent resident, all of that is encompassed in that as well. And finally, wage and hour is looking to protect the wages, the U.S. workers' wages. So they're looking at the public access files. They're digging into the wage worksheets. They're looking at the, are the people being paid the prevailing wage, the actual wage, whichever is hired. Are the foreign nationals being treated less than the U.S. workers are being treated? Because if they are, then it shows that repressing of, of salaries for U.S. workers and that people would rather hire foreign nationals. All of those things are where you see the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor drilling down into. Okay, Aaron. 
So you can see there's a lot of issues that you as employers are being constantly under the microscope with many of these government agencies. So if the company, if the employer is employing such non-immigrant workers on H or L status, uh, Alyssa, if I can come to you, will the employer have additional compliance requirements or be subject to specific types of compliance? Right. So just, you know, uh, expanding on what Aaron had mentioned, um, you know, the FDNS department specifically is focused on compliance with non-immigrant cases. Um, and they will be responsible for doing a variety of reviews on these matters. Um, one example is performance of fraud assessments. Um, the officers of FDNS uh, will engage in fraud assessment, including benefit fraud and compliance assessments, to determine the types and volume of fraud in certain immigration benefits programs. They'll conduct uh, systematic reviews of certain types of applications or petitions to ensure the integrity of the immigration benefit system. And these are compliance reviews. These are, I think, what um, companies who employ H-1s are, are probably very familiar with, which is these random site visits and things of that nature based on approved H-1s. Um, and then you also have targeted site visits that FDNS carries out, and these are conducted in cases where fraud is suspected. Um, in addition, you also have uh, wage and hour, which is like, again, like Aaron pointed out, um, also has uh, um, investigative responsibilities over public access files, which are specifically uh, tied to H-1Bs. Okay, thanks, Alyssa. And so to answer the question about the types of immigration violations that we most commonly see targeted for site visits, I think Aaron already maybe went over it in great detail a couple minutes ago because the government really is looking to see whether the H-1B or the L-1 non-immigrant, especially now we're seeing even more L-1 cases and even including L-1As, whether they are complying with what's written on the H-1 or L-1 petition, whether they're doing the work in the specific location, the job duties, the salary. Um, and generally, these occur after the approval of the petition, not before the adjudication of the petition. Um, so with respect to FDNS investigations, Aaron, how are these carried out? So the FDNS investigations, they're, they're going to, they, they're, so they can be done in several different ways, but usually they start off by going to the employee's place of employment, where the person's physically going to be, going to be working. And they're going to see, you said there that this particular location, they're performing these particular job duties. So they'll show up on site at that location. They'll try to isolate the employee and ask the employee questions specifically about what their job duties are to see if it's consistent with the original filing. Uh, these types of site visits are interesting because when you're dealing with consulting companies or third-party placements, it means many times the employer is not even aware uh, with what's going on until after the fact. Uh, in addition to that, um, the officers will usually follow up with the employer. Uh, if they're located in a separate location, uh, they'll follow up by email or they'll follow up themselves by visiting, again, with a list of questions and pointed issues. Uh, generally, when the FDNS does an investigation and they're looking into something, they don't necessarily look into, oh, you have 300 cases, let's look at all 300 cases and see what's going on. It feels more like a spot check where they're identifying three out of 50 or, or one or two out of 10, uh, and they're just doing to say, okay, how is this going? What's happening? And if they see an issue there, then it could potentially escalate to something else. 
Uh, also, questions asked by the officer will mostly around, uh, revolve around the nature of the work that's being out, carried out by employee. Uh, the employee, they're verifying the wages and also the interaction between the employer and the employee. And that goes, again, when you're dealing with consulting companies to, for example, employer-employee relationship is, in fact, the employer controlling the employee and what's going on. Um, the emails that are going to the employer also can request follow-up information. So not just information to say, hey, we've gone ahead and interviewed your employee, but they can say, we've interviewed your employee, we have these concerns, accordingly provide us this additional information or that additional information to help crystallize whatever it is that they're looking for, either in the positive or the negative. Okay. Uh, thank you, Aaron and Alyssa. So what is the best way for an employer that's now on this conference call to try to understand how to handle these FDNS visits or follow up for verification? So Sheila, I think the first thing to understand is that this program, the Administrative Site Visit Verification Program um, that FDNS carries out, is it is, it's considered a vo- voluntary for the employer to participate. Um, basically, practically what this means is FDNS itself does not have the ability to issue fines like the Department of Labor or ICE has the ability to do. But but keep in mind that if the company does exercises the right to voluntarily not participate, then there are certain negative ramifications. Um, one possibility may be that FDNS refers the issue back internal within USCIS, and USCIS could take the uh, decision to issue a notice of intent to revoke to get the questions answered that they that they um, that FDNS was not able to get. Um, the other thing too is, and as again as Aaron pointed out initially, is these agencies do have um, basically they they have partnership with each other. So the FDNS who you know can refer um, these companies and these issues to ICE or to Wage and Hour. So it can again escalate into something bigger for the company. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that if you do want to participate but are not prepared to respond immediately, that the employer or the employee can request FDNS out, FDNS to reach out to their immigration attorney on record um, already for that H-1B or L-1 case, or they can forward the request to their immigration attorney of record so they can bring someone in to help respond. Or an outside immigration counsel. Or an outside counsel, immigration like counsel, exactly, okay. to, to help respond um, at that juncture. Um, normally, FDNS only will give the employer uh, or employees like a few days to respond, but again, this is not something under regulation or law that they, they have the ability to enforce. So a common recommendation that we would make is to ask for some additional time to go back to the officer um, and request uh, you know that extension to, to answer their questions. And, and that's a really important point because I think at the end of the day, it's scary when a guy shows up with a gold tin badge and it's got that kind of look on their face like, oh, they're part of the government agency, federal agency, and they're conducting an investigation. But knowing your rights is critical. Knowing that you can say you can not you can choose not even to participate, but if you're going to choose to participate, which, as Alyssa said, is probably a good idea, you can choose your terms of engagement. I want my lawyer present. I want to make sure that we have time to review the questions before we sit down and speak to you. I want to make sure that what we're doing is good and proper so that we're complying with your request to do the investigation, but we're not harming ourselves unnecessarily in the process. Okay, 
So basically, from the company's point of view, if either the as you as an employer or if your employee gets an email or a phone call, um, the question is, you know, if you may say, okay, so what do we do? How do we? What what can we do? And as we've discussed. You know, a lot of times what happens is that phone call or email may appear to be very informal or friendly, but please keep in mind that these people are not your friends. Their job is to investigate you as an employer and to get fines if they can. Uh, you have the right to maybe video record the conversation. You can be have somebody taking notes for you. You're allowed to stay for the interview. You don't have to provide your conference room so that they can investigate or grill one of your employees. You as an employer have the right to stay in the conference room by asking permission. Uh, you can also request them to come back after hours because you don't want to disrupt or cause morale, loss of morale among your staff. So, you know, there's a lot you can do and knowing what to do, knowing where to go, knowing what to ask. As we said, contacting your co company lawyer, contacting your outside lawyer, like somebody, maybe the multi law firm that has done this routinely with very successful results for our clients can certainly be a big plus point. Uh, it's always best, of course, to be prepared, whether it's you as an employer or even your employees. You should make sure that you have a system in place, a protocol for who is going to be the first point of contact when they knock in. Tell your front desk receptionist or whoever that if somebody comes in, don't worry, just please call the head of HR, the manager, the in-house counsel, et cetera. And also the employees should be told that in this day and age, in this climate, uh, with all the nonsense going on, uh, and unfortunately with the current administration, that you need to be prepared and have a system in place uh, so who's going to contact whom? If the employee's contacted, they shouldn't freak out and start looking for other jobs because they're thinking that their company's gonna get shut down, that this is quite common and ordinary to expect it, to stay calm and to have a plan of action in place. So Aaron, once the employer and the employee respond to the inquiry, how do we know everything has been resolved? So I'm gonna jump into that, but I wanna just follow up one thing that Sheila said. Uh, real quickly, is just this, is all of us are very smart people, but all of us have a certain portion in our brain that we all know of that whether we share with others or not, but that's that portion where we're not as smart about things as we are with other things. Uh, that tends to happen when you're confronted in a difficult situation, when that instinct, that fight or flight instinct kicks in, when that stomach has that butterflies, when the adrenaline is pumping, when the person is standing there and you just want to show that you're a good actor. So you tend to say too much. You tend to do too much. You tend to be too effusive because you really want to show we're good people and we're doing the right thing. Uh, a lot of those are, are ad admirable traits, but they're also traits that could lead you down the wrong road. The, dis the difference between an honest person and an honest fool, so to speak. So having these things, what Sheila just said, a protocol in place, an action plan on what to do when somebody comes into your office, into your space, and starts demanding information and things to know what your rights are and how to respond to it is just absolutely critical. Uh, Sheila, to answer your question about um, how do we know when everything is resolved, it's actually very difficult because the FDNS officer, uh, they can be satisfied with the answers that they receive from your questions. Satisfied could mean good or it could mean bad for you. You just simply don't know. Uh, but there's no way to know whether or not it's successful 
uh, or whether or not they're going to issue an intent to revoke. And many times these things that they do issue come up uh, months, if not years down the road. So you simply don't know. And we've seen cases where people have gotten extensions and then they've come to the office. They say, but I'm on the extension and now I have the notice of intent to revoke from the original one that was approved four and a half years ago. But now they finally got around to making their assessment from the FDNS investigation. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that even though we have separate agencies, FDNS, ICE, uh, Department of Labor, uh, they definitely have joint task forces. As Alyssa had mentioned before, they, gen- gen- they, gen- they, they, they absolutely partner with each other, and it's very possible that one feeds off of the other so that if one investigation finds something, you can expect a second and the third parties to start joining in there. Uh, For example, the USCIS has a partnership with Immigration and Custom Enforcement with ICE in which FDNS pursues administrative inquiries into most applications and petition frauds, while ICE conducts the criminal investigations into major fraud conspiracies. Uh, If a company is consistently being subject to site visits, that's that's a good sign that you might need to be wary. Uh, it's a very good sign that you're that the company's probably under investigation, and it's more than a random site visit. Uh, so this would be important when the employers for the employer to seek assistance from a qualified immigration attorney at that point to the review their site history and to get assistance in responding to future inquiries. And as Sheila mentioned in the beginning, to make sure the paperwork is good. Okay. So what other types of investigations are becoming more common, Alyssa? Right, and I'll just touch briefly on this, uh, again, because I think we've gone over it a bit already. But for uh, companies that employ H-1 workers, uh, Department of Labor wage an hour is is, uh, um, a big issue because when you're filing an H-1B, you file an LCA. And when you Mm -hmm. file an LCA, you're subjecting yourself to the Department of Labor's review. Um, And the Department of Labor, unlike FDNS, um, can directly issue fines and penalties. Okay. Um, So I think most of us uh, uh, in this conference call are pretty familiar with the concept of public access files and payment of required or prevailing wages. Um, But the term non-displacement is often thrown around. And if most of us will remember the good, uh, 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 rather a bad example of it is the, the Disney uh, world cases where the employees of Disney Corporation claimed that they were laid off and replaced with H-1B workers whom they had to train, basically, their replacement, which was a big piece of news. I think even 60 Minutes had an expose on it. And, of course, Trump made a huge big deal of it in his election rhetoric. And even after that, uh, when he became the president, uh, and the concern, of course, the focus for the Department of Labor is to protect U.S. workers protect the wages and working conditions for U.S. workers. So obviously they get very upset uh, because U.S. workers were replaced by, in their mind, lower paid H-1B workers. So how does the Department of Labor investigate an H-1B employer's compliance, Aaron? Well, generally this is triggered when an employee or former employee makes a wage and hour complaint to Department of Labor and then they're obligated to investigate. When the Department of Labor shows up at an employer's location, they're going to request the public access files, which by regulation you're required to produce within three days of the request. As with the FDNS visit that we discussed before, employers should have a protocol for receiving the Department of Labor agent, have designated personnel for first point of contact, 
uh, to reach out to within the company, understand what's required and what's not required. Again, the employer is entitled to a three-day period of time to produce the public access files, so they're not required to provide it on the same day as the visit. An employer is not required to produce internal material such as that relating to their their own internal audits uh, or any information that might be attorney-client privilege. Uh, the Department of Labor uh, should also leave the employer with a specific list of items, exactly what they want, and a time frame for the public access files, such as all public access files for a one-year window or a one-year period of time. And the last point I would say is nowhere does it say you're required to sit down and talk to them and discuss the public access files and discuss your business protocol or your procedures or anything along those lines. They can demand the public access files, but that's it. But most of the times when I speak with companies, Aaron and Alyssa, the company says, well, I don't have anything to hide. So I told the agent, please come in, look at whatever you want. Here are the files. Is that a good strategy? I think it's a very bad strategy. You know, there, again, I mentioned previously there's a difference between an honest person and an honest fool. An honest person tells the truth and complies with the law. An honest fool is somebody that goes out of their way to show how honest they are to the point of making themselves look bad. If you drive a car down the block and you're supposed to drive at 35 miles an hour, I'm telling you, if I'm looking closely, you're going 36 or you're going 30 or you don't put on your blinker when you change lanes. Everybody has something minute that's there at best or something's bigger that they didn't realize. So to me, I would comply with the letter of the law, but not try to overextend because that's just a way that gets you into trouble. Okay. So Aaron mentioned that you have three days, so you don't have to do anything right away. But three days seems like such a short time, Alyssa. How does the employer handle this? Well, the employer should also consider, you know, how much is being requested by the Department of Labor and, and what's reasonable. Um, also, if a company has maintained internal audits, um, kept up to date on monitoring their own compliance, it's also probably going to make it easier for the company to hand over the required documents or the requested documents to the DOL. Um, but again, you know, it's very important to keep a line of communication open. If you have an attorney that's representing you um, or you have a designated point of contact who manages these things for the company, um, they can go back to the Department of Labor and negotiate getting an extension of the timeline. Okay. So when, well, you know, the next question we thought of going over was what happens when the Department of Labor reviews the requested documentation. So as we said, the job, main job of the Department of Labor is to protect the wages and working conditions for U.S. workers, which includes U.S. citizens and permanent residents or those with valid EADs, etc. But the Department of Labor ultimately bases everything on what they review. So they may assess fines for violations. They may assess back wages. If they d identify that H-1B workers have been, in their mind, underpaid, not paid the Department of Labor wage, especially if they're on the bench, not working, or, um, you know, they can, of course, slap penalties, fines, debarment, and prohibit the employer from utilizing the H-1B program, obviously, which is very serious for those who need the H-1 workers. Um, so, Aaron, let me come back to you. These types of compliance investigation reviews seem to be focused heavily on the H-1B program, but... There are other investigations that may be not related to H-1s at all. What are these? So ICE, for example, their responsibility is to oversee the I-9 compliance. So I-9 is not necessarily focused on specific uh, non-immigrant classifications, but focused on all workers that the company has present. Uh, similarly, DOL, wage and hour is not necessarily just focused on public access files, but is focused on people that have violations or are failing to pay employees, all employees, what they're supposed to be paid. Wonderful. Uh, 
Right. And, and then when ICE does initiate an I-9 uh, investigation, again, it's a little uh, more formal, like with wage and hour, um, the inspection process is initiated by serving a notice of inspection, and the employer then has, by law, three business days uh, to um, produce their forms I-9. Um, and, and ICE may also ask for additional company documentation like payroll and list of current, current employees. Again, as with these other forms of investigation and audit, uh, the recommendation is that employers should contact their attorney before handing documents over. Even if a company thinks their I-9s are, you know, in good shape and and they're compliant and everything's sufficient, they really should be making sure that they're doing internal audits and reviews of their records before handing them over. Um, And again, you know, have have your point of contact, communicate with uh, the representative from ICE to perhaps discuss a timeline for delivering the documents. Okay. And with respect to what can you as an employer do to improve your situation or to minimize your exposure, once there is a notice of inspection issued, um, you may still be able to take some good faith efforts to minimize liability, such as making corrections or completing new I-9 forms, Don't try to backdate it. Date it with today's date. If you cannot locate, for example, I-9s for a stack of employees or what have you, uh, it should be clear that this is not, as I said, a backdating situation, but a corrective action. Now, ideally, preferably, the least fines are when you show that you are doing that before the Department of Labor or ICE or FDNS knocked on your door, if you show that you're doing regular audits within your paperwork. But if not, even if you give it to them with the corrected information now, they will take that into account when slapping fines or penalties, etc. cetera. Um, even if the employer makes the corrections late, uh, as I said, it's, it's, it shows good faith to the auditor that you're doing everything that you're trying to do to comply with the law. And Sheila, just to jump in real quick, I, I also think this applies to the DOL um, investigations when you're talking about public access files. You you know, you you want to show to the uh, whichever agency or department is investigating you that your company is operating in good faith, that, that you're doing the best you can to comply. Makes sense. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's always important to have an outside person, whether it's your company's internal lawyer, employment lawyer, immigration lawyer, somebody that's familiar with how these systems and processes work. Um, It's unfortunate that it is becoming a matter of routine for the government to knock on your door as an employee, as a company. So it's funny because the standards where people get into a lot of trouble is knowingly and willfully for Department of for um, ICE. It's willful violator for the um, what do you call it, for Department of Labor. But if you went and you hired somebody to review your public access files, if you went and hired somebody to check over your I-9s, so they would say, how can you make a finding of willfully or knowingly when you're making the the effort to self-police and to make sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's? So even if something's missed in that situation, it just tends to show that you're a good actor, and good actors definitely get treated differently in these types of investigations. Okay, so Aaron, let me ask you then to clarify what is ICE looking for in such investigations? You know, ICE is looking for not just violations regarding the completion of the Form I-9 itself, not technical violations, though they will find them. But ICE is also looking for employees who actually do not have work authorization. Um, ICE can issue not only notices listing technical violations, but they also list of employees who they believe are providing sus- suspect documents, uh, documents that are not, not actually bona fide. Uh, once this type of list is provided, the employer is given 10 days to respond to the notices from ICE to take corrective actions. These corrective actions could include uh, correcting the I-9s, 
providing new identity slash employment authorization documentations to ICE, that type of information, or terminating employees who can't provide the necessary documentation and can't provide verifiable evidence to respond to the query. Okay. Alyssa, in addition to making these specific corrections that ICE identifies, is there anything else that right. a company can do? Right, and, and again, this is con- this is the same with these other uh, situations, but maintain a line of communication with the ICE agent or the auditor who's, who's conducting the, the review so that a company can potentially negotiate additional time beyond the 10 days to resolve matters. Um, you can use this time to implement new policies or processes to make sure that I-9s are moving forward completed properly. And it's also important because once a company has been audited, chances are you're going to get a second audit. They will follow up. The news gets worse and worse by right. the minute. Right. I mean, because if, if you know you complete the audit and you make you know it's, you know uh, um, statements or representations that you're doing A, B, and C to correct things, they're going to come back and see have they have you followed through. Sometimes a couple years later. Yes. Even. Yes. So you're not even. It's like when you feel like, oh, okay, I'm good, and then the next thing you know, they're there again. So from an employer's perspective, you may say, okay, so what can I expect when an audit has been completed? So ultimately, an employer could be issued either a warning notice or a notice of intent to fine, or like we just received a couple days, a few days ago, a letter saying everything the employer did was correct and there's no fines, no penalties, no nothing, because our lawyers went and negotiated and were able to get that clarification, uh, uh, get the um, company off the hook. But we have seen instances over the years um, where you know, what the, when the employer uh, uh, thinks that there's been a conclusion of the audit, that they have provided everything required or requested, and then a notice of fine is still issued in some cases because people come to us to renegotiate or go back to the government at that point. Right. It could be years later. And as we were yeah. talked earlier, it could be years later. And if there is a fine by ICE for substantive or uncorrected, even technical minor violations, they, the, the, there are really five factors that ICE takes into account in determining uh, fines. Uh, one, the size of the business. Second, the good faith efforts to comply. Three, the seriousness of the violation. Four, whether the violation involved unauthorized workers or just minor violations with authorized workers. And five, the history of prior violations. Yeah, and, and in addition to these five, it's important to know these fines are not supposed to be business crippling. They're supposed to be have the effect of giving getting your attention. So sometimes when you see the fines are coming, you can argue back and you can try to show this is why it's business crippling. This is why it's something that pushes beyond. This is why it's closing down the company. And these give you the opportunity to sometimes reduce the fine, but not if you're a willful violator, but not if you're somebody who did it knowingly. So you have to understand that that critical point of making the right effort and doing the right thing is so important. Um, I know that employers... Uh, are determined to have to knowingly hired or continue to employ unauthorized workers will be required to cease the unlawful activity and they may be fined. And in certain situations, they may be criminally prosecuted. Additionally, an employer found to have knowingly hired or continued to employ unauthorized workers may also be subject to debarment from ICE, meaning that the employer will be prevented from participating in future government contracts, federal contracts, and from receiving other types of potential government benefits. Okay. And Alyssa, so my understanding is that fines alone 
can run sometimes into the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars or even more, depending on the size of the company. Uh, what can the company do at this point? So if the company issues a notice of intent to fine, they, they, they do have the opportunity to either negotiate a settlement with ICE or request a, a hearing before the office of the Chief Administrative Hearing Officer or OCAHO. Um, and, and they do have to submit that um, that request for a hearing within 30 days. And, and then what would happen at that point generally is you submit the notice of the uh, hearing and then you engage in the negotiation directly with the local ICE office who issued the notice of intent to fine. Um, if, if no final, if, if the employer takes no action, then ICE is going to issue a final order. Um, if you did ultimately request the hearing and it moves on to that beyond the negotiation with ICE, um, then the notice of hearing um, I'm sorry, the administrative law judge sends all parties a copy of the notice of hearing and government's complaint, and then it just sets the wheels in motion. Um, and like I said before, usually, you know, the employer will request the hearing, but really they're, they're just using that to you get time to negotiate with ICE. Uh, if a company engages an attorney at this time, um, you know, they can the attorney will look to negotiate on the factors used and review the files to see if there's anything that can be argued to reduce the number of violations. But again, if no, you know, you didn't receive assistance or review the documents before sending them in to the government, there's only so much you can do with regards to what's already been put on record. Prevention is always cheaper mm-hmm. than cure. Yes. Okay. And then ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, if you do end up um, in front of, you know, Okaho, you can argue for a reduction of fines there. Sure, sure. So as we've all three been talking, you know, all of these types of investigations obviously are pretty serious, costs you as an employer time and money and fear among your employees and your staff, and also prevents you from focusing on doing what is your core business, which is how you make your money and pay your bills and keep everybody happy. Um, So while we've discussed different types of investigations, whether it's FDNS, with ICE, with Department of Labor, Um, You know, uh, the question is, what kinds of recommendations can we sort of summarize, uh, you know, to you as an employer, as we discussed, all of us three had discussed earlier, Aaron, Alyssa and myself, you know, always self-audit your files on a regular basis, have a specific protocol in place, um, train your staff to be prepared and sort of get them prepared because otherwise people kind of panic when things happen, when somebody knocks on your door, especially if they come in a uniform. And sometimes they come in uniform, sometimes they don't. Uh, Bring in assistance of qualified and experienced attorneys who have experience with these types of matters as soon as possible, uh, rather than later to minimize the risk of exposure. And as we said earlier, the the investigators are never your friends. They are paid their salary from the fines that you collect among other factors, and that's taken into account for their bonuses and raises and the company. And a lot of it is to their their job is to try to get as much information from you when you are least, um, you know, when you're least, uh, when you're not on your guard, rather, least prepared in a sense. I know we've, I feel like we've really gone an inch deep and a mile long to give you a broad overview so to help you to identify issues. Obviously, we at the Multi Law Firm can help you if the government knocks on your door. I know that Aaron or Alyssa mentioned briefly something a couple different times about criminal investigations or violations can be uh, started against you as employers of the company, especially if they feel that it was willful knowing violations. And a lot of times we actually go over some of this and I tell people uh, on a personal level, if the government knocks on your 
home as opposed to your office, you have actually greater rights under the U.S. Constitution because it is a home, it is a place of protection, it is not just a business place. Um, you know, you don't have to open the door. Most people think if the, somebody knocks, you know, your system of being polite, uh, don't be polite. They're, they're not your friends, as I said earlier. Um, you can demand, uh, what do they call, a warrant. You can demand a warrant signed by a judge. Uh, if they threaten to break open the door um, because they feel that they can find incriminating or they have some piece of paperwork, ask them to actually slip the information under the door if necessary uh, for you to look at it. Ask the officer for the badge, the ID, the name, the number. Uh, always remember you do have rights uh, and do not consent to a search unless you really feel that they have all the required paperwork signed by a judge, which in, by the way, nine out of 10 times, ICE usually does not get it because it's so difficult to get the judge. And that's why we talk about the separation of powers in the United States with the, you know, the executive branch, the, le the uh, legal branch, and the, uh, the legislative branch. So all of this discussion today was not to scare you, but more to tell you that you have rights to be prepared, to be proactive, and to basically train your HR, your staff, your employees, so that people are mentally and psychologically prepared uh, of how best to deal with the situation. So on behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, on behalf of Alyssa Klein, our member and attorney, myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference. And we look forward to continuing to take good care of you, your business, and your peace of mind with respect to all immigration matters. And God forbid if the government comes knocking on your door. Have a great day. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.